so when we do lead in-person tastings, we'll sometimes have like a tasting wheel in front of the customers so they can kind of go through and see what they taste. And we just let it be a really fun exploratory process without putting any pressure on them. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. How much do you know about olive oil? After this episode, probably a lot more. Skylar Mapes, co-founder of Exo Olive Oil and co-author of the new book, The Olive Oil Enthusiast, joined us from her home in Calabria, Italy, to drop invaluable olive oil knowledge from harvest to bottle, plus Italy travel tips and more. It's a fun episode, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Skylar Mapes, this is Taste. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I have to know, have you had olive oil today already? Yes, of course. Tell me about it. What'd you have? How was it eaten? So we had a vegetable broth because Giuseppe has been a little bit under the weather. And so I used the tutti as a finishing oil and we just had some really good soup. So tell me about what makes something a good finishing oil, because I'll admit that I think I use the same olive oil for everything. Okay. Well, this is actually a big question because it depends on what you're eating. So at XL, we produce high quality extra virgin olive oil, which is good for both cooking and finishing. And today, like I said, I was using the tutti, which is produced with 100% Petalea olives, which are native to the region of Calabria. And I like to use it as a finishing oil on vegetables because it acts as a really good complement for foods like zucchini and carrots and peas. And those were all in the soup that we were eating today. So they just go really very well together. I love that. And I love that I have like an olive oil expert that I can barrage with questions today. And I guess to zoom out, I'm wondering like, what was your olive oil consumption like before you moved to Italy? How did you interact with it? Oh my gosh. It's kind of embarrassing, honestly. Like just that she still laughs at me for um, our pre-exile days. So I was using a mix of olive oil and coconut oil, and I actually used to have like a half liter of olive oil from Trader Joe's in my bathroom because I would use it as a moisturizer. So I didn't really see olive oil as just a kitchen item, which is still true to this day. But I would say that I used it more as a moisturizer than in the kitchen as a cooking fat. So I didn't use it very much. Honestly, I love that. And there is a section in your book that is talking about olive oil as a beauty product. So that already makes more sense to me talking to you about it now. Was that your inspiration for like having that section? Absolutely. I think that olive oil as a makeup remover and as a moisturizer is so underrated. And it's incredibly It's also a really good affordable option for folks that are looking for a product to last a little bit longer. I mean, you know, in comparison to your bottle of makeup remover or whatever type of like oil-based cleanser, you can use a $30 bottle of olive oil, which is much bigger. It'll last longer and it probably has higher antioxidants. So in other words, if you're cooking with olive oil and you have some extra on your hands, just rub it into your hands or your elbows or something. Correct. (laughs) So before you were starting an olive oil business, what were you doing and then what inspired you to switch careers? I was working in the design industry, particularly the architecture and structural engineering industry. And 
I have a degree in architecture. I went to school for architecture and I love the design industry, but I was just feeling overly taxed in that field. And it felt like I was not going to be able to move forward creatively in the, in the way that I wanted to, that felt authentic to myself. I didn't think that I had, I was going to be able to grow enough. Um, and so I started looking for more creative outlets that led to me working in the wine industry with a friend who owns a winery and as a winemaker. And then eventually we pivoted and started working in olive oil. Um, because my husband and my business partner, Giuseppe, his family has worked in the olive oil industry for a number of years and they have olive trees. And so it felt like a natural, the next natural step in exploring, okay, how can I take my love for food and a creative process and make something beautiful out of it? So where were you living before you moved to Calabria and what was the transition like? We were living in the Bay Area. I'm from Oakland originally. So we were living in Oakland and then we made a decision to move to Austin, Texas. And this was early 2020. So pre-COVID and nobody knew what COVID was yet. And so we moved from the Bay Area to Austin, Texas. We were there for a few months. And then guess what happens in March of 2020? Like, bam, COVID shows up. All of our events got canceled. We couldn't do anything in person, couldn't travel. And so we just decided, like, you know what? Everything's canceled anyways. We have to get back to Italy for harvest. And so we made a decision to start spending longer amounts of time in Italy. And then did you come back to the States? I mean, eventually maybe you've come back, but you, Italy is where you live now, right? Yes, yeah, so we split our time between Austin and Calabria. Okay, so I have to ask as a fellow Californian, what was the like culture shock like moving from the U.S., from California to Italy? Were there any changes that maybe like you were surprised about or weren't as expected? Yes, there were a lot of changes. But I think this also comes down to what part of Italy, Calabria is located in. Oakland, where I'm from, is a big city and there's a lot of things happening and there's always, you know, activities and functions and parties and lots of museums. There's a lot of events and it feels very metropolitan. Calabria is countryside. There's, yes, of course, there are big cities, but it's farming country. The people here, a lot of them are farmers. They're growing corn and wheat and vineyards and olive trees. So that has been, and I think will always kind of be a big culture shock for me because when I was living in the Bay Area, I would go up to white country, to Sonoma or Napa when I wanted to get out of the city. And now there's no need to do that because I'm already in the countryside. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um and I'm curious if you can tell me about like what's special about Calabrian olive oil versus Sicilian or Tuscan or even like Californian olive oil. So like wine, olive oil has terroir, which is the influence of soil and weather and a cultivar kind of acclimating to the way that it's grown in a specific area. And in Calabria, that's especially true. The zone, the coastal part of Calabria, all the way over to Puglia and some parts of Sicily are known as Magna Grecia, which means Great Greece. And it's called Magna Grecia because a lot of the Greeks moved from Greece up to southern Italy and started settling in this part of the country in the 7th century BC. 
And they brought with them a lot of different type of plants. One of them, of course, being the olive tree, which has kind of grown to um, be different types of cultivars, which the Catalea is one of the most famous in this region today. So the Catalea olive tree, although it was or originally technically Greek, it has developed to be characteristically Calabrian. And if you include the terroir, that uh, has a huge impact and influence on the way that that tree is grown here in this region. So in Sicily, you have Nocciolata de Bellice, in Puglia, you have Coratina, which is the most famous olive tree in that area. And then in Calabria, you have the Catalea olive, which is the most commonly grown cultivar in this area. Gotcha. And if I was going to be, you know, maybe sipping these different olive oils off a spoon or just kind of tasting them, would there be like a main taste signifier for Calabrian olive oil? Yeah. So with the Catalea, you're going to get a lot of notes of like green apple, depending on where it's grown. Again, because terroir plays a huge influence depending on if it's grown in the Crotone zone or the Catanzaro zone, Catanzaro zone of the region. Um, but you can often find notes of green apple, sometimes green pepper, and also almond. If you're going to taste um, a roginella, which is a cultivar that's more grown in the mountains of Calabria, you'll often find notes of ripe purple olive, plum, and then on the nose, sometimes banana. Banana olive oil sounds crazy and not like something I've ever tried before. Do you feel like because you have the wine background, you're able to kind of isolate these tasting notes and engage in olive oil in that kind of way? Absolutely. I grew up running around wineries with my parents who, um, I will admit, were part of a lot of wine clubs. So I had, <laughs> I feel like I spent a lot of time in wineries, which was really, really great for developing that background, that sommelier-esque background, which you need for olive oil. Yeah. I'm curious how you feel about, I feel like with wine and with olive oil and coffee and all of these different foods that have so much heritage and also so many nuances and tasting points within them, to me, it can be almost overwhelming when I look up like a bag of coffee and it says, oh, it'll have notes of toffee and chocolate and nuts and all of these things. And then when I drink it, to me, it tastes like delicious coffee, but maybe not any of those tasting notes. Like, how do you approach talking to your customers about like what they should be experiencing when they open a bottle of your olive oil, as opposed to just letting them have that experience? I don't put any pressure on them. Like, we need to stop expecting everyday consumers to have the same access to all of, to that, well, to that library, to that mental library as sommeliers do. It's just not going to happen. So when we do lead in-person tastings, we'll sometimes have like a tasting wheel in front of consumer, in front of the customers. And so they can kind of go through and see what they taste. And we'll just let it be a really fun exploratory process without putting any pressure on them and see what they say. Some people will say, oh my gosh, I do taste banana, or oh, I do taste black pepper. Or they'll say, oh, this is reminiscent of something, like a green that I've had before, and, and I feel it on the back of my throat. And then sometimes they're like, I taste strawberry. I'm like, that, there's no strawberry. <laughs> there's no strawberry in this. Um, but we just, you know, let people explore and see what they taste. No pressure. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious because you have this design background when it came to coming up with the bottles for your olive oil. How did you think about like what you wanted that experience to be? Because obviously like picking an oil off the shelf is a huge way that people are getting olive oil into their kitchens. So we actually just recently rebranded. Um, but the original branding for XL, which is like that dark green label mm-hmm. with the white writing vertical, which a lot of people associated XL with initially. I designed a label and my background in the design and architecture industry definitely heavily influenced that because we wanted a nice, clean, modern label. Because, you know, when you walk down the olive oil shelf, you see all of these like just very similar olive leaf, olive-esque labels and we wanted it to feel almost more like a wine label if that makes sense instead of in your face greek or in your face italian olive oily we have since recently rebranded and the head that's at the top of our label is from our book the olive enthusiast um which we, we it's from an illustration in the book which we pulled from and then there is the background of one of our olive trees which was also pulled from our book so it has a lot of personal significance to us, as well as making a nod to um, the Magna Grecia world and um, that kind of like Great Greece theme, which you can see you can see today in Calabria. Yeah, I think it's so fun that you get to bring in elements of your book in that way because the book is so lush and illustrated and beautiful. And I'm curious about the recipes in the book and how you went about developing them because the book is a really cool mix of, you know, great information about buying olive oil and storing it and how it's grown. And then there are these kind of recipes as well. When you were putting the book together, did you come up with the recipes first or how did you kind of nail that component? So I always wanted to write a book and Giuseppe shared the same sentiment. So when Tenspeed reached out to write a book about olive oil, they asked if he wanted to include recipes. And we said, yes, because we've actually been collecting recipes from Giuseppe's aunt and his mom for the past probably like four or five years. And so we already had a collection of recipes that we could pull from. And then we already had a list of recipes that we knew we wanted to write down and record. So the process was a mix of writing down and kind of editing some of the existing recipes that we had a good handle on, and then going back to Giuseppe Zia and his mom for the recipes that we really, really wanted to record. And then for the recipes like the waffles and the popcorn and the olive oil brownies, those were all things, and also the semolina olive oil cake. Those are all things that I was making almost every, at least once a month during the pandemic. Like I swear during the pandemic, I was probably making olive oil brownies twice, like at least once or twice a week. It was ridiculous. I was like giving them out to people. I was just eating them out of the tray. (laughs) These are things that we were eating all the time. And so it was easy. Like we need to put this in the book. Yeah, I don't think it's ridiculous at all to be making olive oil brownies that often. I wish I had someone in my life that was doing that so I could be eating them. Uh, And I think it's so fun to hear about the recipes coming in part from your uh, mother-in-law and like your Giuseppe's family, because I follow you on Instagram. And so I get to see these glimpses of the like lunches and dinners that they make for you, which I'm just so jealous about. And I'm curious, like what it's like to be eating so much like Southern Italian home cooking. Are there any staples that you find yourself eating often? My favorite dish that Giuseppe's mom makes is eggplant parmigiana 
It is so perfect. It's so good. And the reason it's so good is because she uses a really great proportion of tomato sauce to fried eggplants to cheese. So it's not overly tomatoey, which I think is a mistake that a lot of people make. They put too much tomato sauce in. But if you pull back on the tomato sauce and then you go, you move more deeply with the basil and the eggplant and the cheese, it creates a really beautiful creamy dish that is very, very, very vibrant without the tomato, again, being overpowering. Yeah, that sounds so great. And I think that a lot of people would eat eggplant parm, you know, in the winter as kind of a comfort food. But actually, this time of year when we have these really beautiful late summer, early fall eggplant is kind of the perfect time, especially to be giving it more of that lighter treatment. So it sounds like Giuseppe's mom is maybe inspiring what I'll make for dinner soon. Yes. And the eggplants are smaller right now. And when they're smaller, they're sweeter. And so they add that extra sweetness to the dish. And oh my gosh, plus with like the late summer tomatoes, you just can't, you can't, you can't go wrong. And instead of mozzarella, she uses provolone, which is better because it's saltier and it doesn't release as much liquid as mozzarella. And people from Campania, from Naples will try and come at me for this, but I'm sorry. I think it's better with provolone and I will die on that hill. Yeah. And you're just, you're defending like your family's way of doing it. So I feel like that's <laughs> so Italian. Um, and I, I love that. I have to try it with swapping out the cheese. Um, I'm curious because, you know, you obviously live in Calabria, but you seem to be traveling all over Italy, um, or at least when you can. And I'm curious, like as an American in Italy, like what do you think, um, maybe where are some places you think Americans should be going that they're not going, or maybe some places that people do go that you think are overrated? The places that I think people visit too often or that are over-touristy in Italy, it's not that they're not worth visiting, it's that they're not worth visiting in the peak of summer. So like going to Rome in July is an absolute nightmare. You won't catch me there. You will see me in Rome in January or February. I will not go to Venice any other month than like January or February because it's just too many people. So those cities, and the same with Florence, those cities are absolutely beautiful, but there's no reason to visit a big city in Italy in the dead of summer. Anytime from like May to October, I don't think is a really ideal time to visit a big city in Italy, honestly, in my personal opinion. Um, one of my favorite cities to visit is Lecce. I was just there. It was amazing. I had so much fun. And I think it's absolutely a place worth visiting. And I recommend going in like March or April in the spring when it's not too cold. It's not going to be over touristy. Um, you're still visiting a city. So it's not too, you know, the weather is nice and there's still lots of things to do. Um, but if you're going to also go to Puglia to go swimming, go in the summer. What are your like your favorite foods to eat in Lecce? Did you have any memorable meals on this past trip? I had so many memorable meals on this past trip, and I'm going to try and describe them. So Puglia Salento is a part of, it's the southern part of Puglia. It's known for the wine Primitivo, which is like the granddaddy of Zinfandel, which we consume in the U.S. And they make it as one restaurant. Asteria 63, Asteria 63, I think that's the name of it. They make an orecchiette 
which doesn't have pasta, with primitivo. Okay, so it's like a red orecchiette, and it is so delicious. And they also always have specials, so I can't guarantee you know what the special is going to be next week. But everything they make is delicious. I had I also had this other apacity pasta with cream of creamed p- potato sauce. But it was a really simple creamed potato sauce, so she didn't add any like butter or milk. Um, it was very, very, very simple and light with octopus and fennel, and it was excellent. But if you go to Puglia, anything from the sea, any seafood is going to be amazing and fresh because there's just so much coast. There's not a lot of mountains. So I wouldn't recommend, I don't think it's a place where you go to eat, you know, pork or beef necessarily, unless you're more in northern Puglia. But if I'm in Salento, I'm going to be eating seafood, mussels, clams, shrimp, fish, octopus. Wow, that sounds so great. And I love thinking about the context of where you are in the country and what foods are most available and kind of letting that guide what you're eating. It seems like a really smart way to travel, like not just in Italy, but really anywhere you are in the same spirit of like not eating gas station sushi in the middle of the country, you know? (laughs) Agreed. So because you're uh, my resident olive oil expert today, I just want to like fact check a couple quick things with you, if that sounds cool. Sounds good. Okay, so I guess to start off, when I'm buying olive oil at the store, what are the like few things that I should be looking for on the bottle to ensure that I'm getting something that's a good product? So first, you want to look at the bottle and make sure that it is a dark bottle or a tin, because we do not want the olive oil to be exposed to light. That is number one enemy. Next, you're going to look on the back of the label for a country or even better is a region of origin because you want the oil to be coming from one place. Um, And I want to just make it super clear here. Some people get hung up on like single point of origin. It has to come from the same farm. I do not agree with that because um, for example, one of our oils it, we, that we produce, it comes from two farms, but they're technically less than three kilometers away because it's a blend. Um, and we have very small production. So I think having the oil come from the same region and, and buying from a smaller brand is, is top price. But country of origin is very, very important. Next, you want to look for a harvest date. The most recent harvest date is going to be 2022. But harvest 2023 is right around the corner. We're harvesting in like two weeks. So that new oil will be available in like January. And then you want to look for a lot number if they have it, just to ensure that can help provide some context of what what like part of property that oil came from. And then, yeah, that's pretty much it. You don't need a bottle date. That's not necessary. Harvest date takes precedence over a bottle date. Gotcha. And harvest is once a year in the fall. So if I'm looking at something in summer and it's from the previous fall, that actually is kind of the best option I could have. Exactly. So if it's, you know, summer 2024, you're going to be looking at harvest 2023. It's always a year behind. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I've always wondered that. And the other thing I've always wondered is this whole smoke point situation. Is it actually bad to be cooking with high quality olive oil at high heat? Should I be bringing in coconut oil or something else? 
No, it's not bad. I wish that I could single-handedly just squash this rumor. It's ridiculous, honestly. So basically, olive oil, we cannot tell what the smoke point is of olive oil because we don't have labs in our house. When when they do, like when scientists and smoke point tests for olive oil, they're doing it in a controlled environment and they're heating the oil up to a certain temperature and they're leaving it at that temperature until they can tell that it has hit its smoke point. That's a measurement that they take. You can't replicate that exact thing in your house unless you're a scientist and for some reason have all that equipment in your home. So when we see an oil like smoking or we see white wind wisps above it, that can be, it can be steam or um, vapors or other things kind of being released out of the oil, which is totally normal. But if you're heating a pan on high heat and you walk away, which you never ever should do, you shouldn't do it with canola oil, butter, peanut oil, and it starts smoking profusely, like you're about to have a kitchen fire, you should throw that oil out because you've obviously burnt the oil. This is not just with olive oil, though. This is with all cooking oils because you've left it on the pan and walked away and could potentially have a kitchen fire. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's that seems like not the smart thing to do. So if if you're deep frying, are you still using olive oil? Like, is there anything that you would not use olive oil for when you're, when you're cooking? We never really deep fry. We're more like pan fryers in this house for everything. It doesn't matter if it's chicken or fish or whatever. It's usually... Um, a pretty, like maybe, I don't know, three quarters of an inch of olive oil on a pan, maximum, maximum. Um, but usually it's half inch of olive oil on a pan. And then we're able to fry like zucchini fritters and fish, calamari, and we fry all of that in olive oil um, because that is, you know, the typical Southern Italian frying oil at home. But we're never worried about um, a smoke point reaching the smoke point because we're frying probably at 325, 350 max, and we don't have any smoking happening. So I don't worry about cooking with olive oil again, unless you're going to be trying to burn your house down. And one cool thing about extra virgin olive oil is that it actually helps to create a barrier around your food, especially if you're eating vegetables. And that can help the vegetable or whatever food that you're cooking retain more nutrients. Yeah, I, that makes sense. Um, I feel like it makes sense you would use olive oil for everything. And I've honestly never had the experience of reaching some kind of crazy smoke point. I just think it's something that people are told about. And then I just like would avoid using olive oil entirely for certain things out of this latent fear that I don't even like really know what that means. So I feel empowered to just keep using my olive oil for everything now. <laughs> I think that one of the best ways to kind of test this or to, to if you're, if people are hesitant about using extra virgin olive oil or regular olive oil for cooking, one of the best things to do is just get a stainless steel pan, heat it on low, medium, low, add some olive oil, add some smashed garlic and a little bit of spicy pepper and just let that heat on lower, medium, low heat for two to four minutes until the garlic is just very light, gentle, golden brown. So it's not burnt yet. And then add your sliced tomatoes in. And that is like the perfect way to ease into cooking with olive oil. 
and make your tomato sauce mm. with basil, of course. Yeah, of course. How could you not? <laughs> so to, to close out today, you know, this is taste and we ask guests about their taste. So I have a little rapid fire like taste check for you. So I'll, I'll ask you some questions and then you can just tell me kind of the first thing that comes to mind, if that sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Um, green olives or black olives? Green olives. Pizza or pasta? Pasta. Gelato or soft serve? Gelato. Most underrated piece of kitchen equipment? Skinny tong. They're supposed to be called tweezer tong, but I, I like to call them skinny tongs. Okay. Most underrated use for olive oil? Skincare. <laughs> Skincare. Favorite cookbook? My Paris Kitchen. Okay. And then the American grocery store item that you miss the most? It's not more of an item. It's more like a accessibility thing. So having access to any type of cuisine at any time, but particularly being able to go into like a Ranch 99 or a Korean grocery store and just get a huge bucket of like kimchi. Yeah, I think I would miss that the most too. Skylar, this was so fun and I'm about to go put olive oil on absolutely everything. So thank you so much for coming by. Thank you for having me. What is up, Eliza? How are you? I'm pretty good, Matt. How are you? I'm great. We're going to talk about three things. Let's do it. What do you got? My first thing is I was up in upstate New York over the past weekend, not quite by your place, yeah. so I would have showed up. Um, I was in Livingston Manor, yeah, yeah, and right I was there for a friend's birthday, and one of the jobs we were given on the way up was to pick up what I thought was the birthday cake, but it turned out that it was actually a birthday key lime pie, which is even better. And it was from a really good bakery in Livingston Manor called the Neon Croissant. Have you been there before? Oh my gosh, I've not been. I've been to the restaurant across the street. Yeah, I, I went there too. A great restaurant. What's the name? Do you remember? I, the Walk-In? Yeah, The Walk-In. So good. I had dinner at The Walk-In about a month and a half ago. Tell me about the neon croissant. I, I've heard such great things. Well, there is a neon croissant, which going in, I was like, <laughs> if there's not a neon croissant or croissants that are neon colored, then I'm going to have to leave because that's just false advertising. But <laughs> they have one and they do uh, really good sourdough bread and croissants and this key lime pie that is maybe like three times taller than what I would consider a typical pie to be. It was very good for like a group birthday situation. And then on the way out, I did have a biscuit, like breakfast at the walk-in across yeah. the street. Saw um, Chef Mina Stone when I was there, yeah. which was cool. Nice. I guess like she spends a lot of time up there. So it was a good um, dessert spot. And I guess if you're if you're near there, I think people should go. Yeah, my, my friends in Livingston Manor have have told me about the, the couple that run uh, Neon Croissant or the, the group that runs it and, and said nothing but great things about the way that they operate their businesses and um, you know, they run out of everything early because it's well known. But I, I've heard great things about them. And, and I, it's a great reminder to, to to reach out and maybe have them on the show. Yeah, but I'm glad to hear that people like how they operate yeah. that live there because I was a true New York City weekender that was there for 24 hours. But the pie was very memorable. So that's also good to hear. So tell me about nature. Like what kind of nature were you were you involved with when you were up in Livingston Manor? Well, you know, it's been raining for the yeah. past couple of days in New York. Yeah. So we did not really spend that much time outside because it was pouring rain the whole time. Yeah. But that's OK. It was still nice to just kind of be up there. And we like cooked a big dinner, played a lot of Uno which is easily the most chaotic 
card game I've played in recent memory. <laughs> I've only played it with like seven and eight year olds recently. Playing it with like 12 drinking adults is <laughs> it's probably more chaotic than seven or eight year olds because everyone has house rules for Uno. So most of the game is arguing over the right way to play it, yeah. um, which I honestly have not laughed harder in recent memory. because <laughs> I was just like, no one knows what's happening. I don't really That's care. Funny. <laughs> just oh my eating God. my pie, playing Uno. What's well, like bluffing too, right? You have to have a little bit of bluff. Yeah, I guess you have a little bit of bluff. I don't really understand how everyone is better at it than me because I thought it was mostly chance with who gets a good card and who doesn't. But apparently people have all sorts of strategies. So I think I need to go. There's some strategies. Brush up on it. Yeah, I like it. What's your first thing? Well, you know what? I was able to do an event with 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 Chef J.J. Johnson um, out uh, last night. I was out at the Short Hills Mall um, talking to him and at Williams-Sonoma out there. And so it was really fun to catch up with J.J. at that event. I was there to to have a conversation about this amazing book he published, The Simple Art of Rice, which JJ and I, he's been on the show twice. He's going to come on again. He's welcome to come back weekly. I mean, the guy, I love talking to JJ. He's so smart and just has so many, like, extremely sharp recipe development ideas and then can take us through the history of rice very fluidly and quickly. I love that about him. This book is tremendous. It's so much work. We've been talking about it for a long time. And I think um, we're going to have him on the show. We'll talk more about it. But I wanted to keep it put in three things because it's at the top of my mind. Yeah, that sounds great. I think JJ is so cool. And he obviously works with rice and grains a lot. Um, he has that restaurant field trip up yep. in Harlem, right? That's a grain bowl place. So that sounds fun. Yeah, it's a great book. And he t- he talks about field trip a bit in there. But really, it's it's also kind of a sneaky travel book because he's done a lot of world travel. And he also has just thought about the globalization of rice. And there's recipes for kimchi bokumbap, risotto, Mexican rice and beans, Israeli rice and beans, New Orleans rice and beans, Haitian John John, Loatian sticky rice. Those are just a few that come to mind. It's all over the world. And he does it in a way that is so thoughtful to origin and the way it's been developed and, and thought through in the book is really impressive. Cool. I love it. What's your next thing? My next thing is I want to shout out like a food Instagrammer that I think is really cool because it's not that often that I would say that sentence, <laughs> to be honest. An Instagrammer of note. Well, I've been making her recipes and they're so good. Oh, um, cool. Her name is Haley Catalano. Her Instagram handle is Chef Haley and Haley with two E's on yeah. the end. Um, and I just think all of her recipes look really delicious and not that fussy. And last week I had this craving for, this is crazy, but for lump crab meat. I just like went and bought oh. it from a fishmonger in Carroll Gardens where I was staying. Fishtails? Yeah. yeah um, and because I saw this recipe she did for a crab salad, a cold crab salad uh, with like a jalapeno scallion like green sauce over warm rice and this idea of like the cold crab and the warm rice just sounded so comforting and good for this like seasonal transition that we're in Mm -hmm. and I love that recipe and I think like she's definitely a food person that has restaurant experience that's kind of combining that with these home cook friendly recipes so I just think it's cool tell me a little bit about her do you know where Chef Haley's from um no I should probably like google her right now (laughs) it doesn't matter like you you you've the the recipes speak for themselves and uh, it's a great follow. I will definitely link to the show notes, and and I love that. And like, so, Liza, how do you think about cooking with lump crab? I, I, it's a little intimidating for me. I don't do it a lot, but I always want to. Yeah, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that ate shellfish at home at all, so it's something that's kind of new for me too. And I think when I moved to the East Coast and people were eating crab all around me, I kind of got more into it. But honestly, it's a luxury to buy the lump crab meat that's already been kind of processed and is ready to just be used in whatever way. But it lasts me for a long time, and I found it was really manageable. So I think um, if you're not trying to do a whole, 
you know, clam bake, like crack open your own crab situation. Yeah. It's a good way to go. Great call. Great call. What's your next thing? My next thing is Dwight Garner's Upstairs Delicatessen. It's it's by far my favorite book of the fall, non-cookbook edition. And I read it in two set sittings. I, I, it was like a meal. I, I had a, a really hearty breakfast. And then I had I finished it up for like a, a heartier dinner. It was two two servings. <laughs> this is just a great book metaphor. Um, how how much does like delicatessen culture play into the book itself? Is it a metaphor? Or? Absolutely zero. And the metaphor was a way of me explaining how how Dwight, who's a longtime New York Times staffer and and now a, a, a head critic um, at the New York Times Book Review, um, is using uh, food in fiction to discuss his life and his own personal reflection on food. Um, so it, very little about the actual delicatessen, the upstairs delicatessen in, in his words um, are, and from an, an author's words, I'm forgetting who, who he was citing, is really just like the, the, all, the, all the foods in the upstairs of your life and your brain and how they all flow together like a delicatessen. Are That's there any like meals from the book that stand out that you could call out? There's so many meals. I mean, the book is structured in a way that is very difficult to pull off because he structures there's like five big sections like breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks and some other section and he's like talking about these foods uh, these breakfast foods and lunch foods in literature, in fiction mostly, but also in pop culture. So he talks about the mac and cheese in the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was Quentin Tarantino's novelization of that famous film. And it's a classic scene. It's like one of my favorite Tarantino movies. Um, but he, he just like, kind of like has these observations um, like that throughout the world of literature. And, and I am... I had a great conversation with him in the studio, and we're going to have him on the show in a couple of weeks, but I wanted to make sure I got it out right away. Like, one of my favorite books of the year. Definitely. What's your next thing? My last thing, I'll also do a book, um, also not necessarily the most food-related. I just read Sipem Zhang's first novel, which is called How Much of These Hills is Gold, and I read it after talking with her on the show about her book Land of Milk and Honey. That was one of my favorite books in recent memory, definitely of the year. That one is very much about food, right? It's about a, a chef who's cooking for this elite mountain institute. And how much of these hills is it prospecting, kind of Western, set around the time of the gold rush? Ah, cool. So it, food is very scarce in the entire book, um, especially for the protagonists, which are a pair of Chinese siblings that are kind of lost from their parents and trying to make their way in the New West. But I really loved reading it. And I think that if you enjoyed listening to that episode, or especially if you read Land of Milk and Honey, yeah. uh, it's worth reading as well. I feel like we should book club the book. You've mentioned a few times I, I'm taking this recommendation very seriously. I love it. Yeah. And I love that you read the f the first book too. It's yeah. Cool. Uh, I would love to do a book club with you, Matt. Yeah. I'll read Upstairs Delicatessen and then we can <laughs> do a little split conversation. We can talk about Dwight's uh, observations. Um, no, it's it's cool that you bring up Land of Milk and Honey. It's getting so many great accolades in, in the press. And that was such a great interview that you did with uh, CPM Zhang. Yeah, I really enjoyed getting to speak with her. Um, and I do think I... I mean, I love the subject matter of land of milk and honey, so maybe that is my favorite over how much of these hills is gold, but I enjoyed reading both of them. Cool. So Very that's cool. my third thing. Okay. How about you? Well, my last thing is simply this. The TikTokers and YouTubers are coming to This Is Taste. They are coming to the studio. We are going to have three conversations with three, I would say, titans in the industry, heavies. I mean, it's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. 
Okay, I actually don't know what you're talking about, so I'm on the edge of my seat. We have a spreadsheet with these guys. I have not been on the spreadsheet, so my delight and excitement will be live and real. Tell me who's coming. Well, right now, scheduled to appear in our studio and to have conversations with is Laurent Dejeuner from TikTok. You may remember him from French-Canadian cooking and slapping his arm and doing cool things on TikTok. Joshua Weissman, who, you know, wrote arguably one of the best-selling cookbooks of the last five years. And Andrew Ray a.k.a. Babish. He's coming to the studio to talk about his empire and, the you know, really what he stands for in classic film and the way Babish has taken over the universe. So what I, I wanted to bring it up here and get your, your take is, like, we got to figure out, like, TikTok and YouTube, is this the future or is this a fad? You know, I don't think it's a fad. It's funny because I don't have TikTok because I don't have the self-control to have TikTok, but I get the videos late on my Instagram reel, and I think that there are a lot of cool things happening in that space, and both of those formats make so much to be telling stories about food, and they're so popular, so I just, I think that they will be around. What do you think? I I fully agree with you. It was like total setup to make me say, like, this is like the future of food, media, and content, and the fact that these three folks are coming to our studio to talk about their, their, their work and their art and the way they, they they instruct about food and and touch literally hundreds of millions of people every year, I um I find it as a real opportunity to to kind of tap in with with the future of food media and I I look forward you know Laurent his book is amazing I've I've been able to check it out and and really you know Joshua and Babish too they all um they have such fan bases and you know I respect the hell out of that because if you are like standing for a food guy like like I'm. I'm here for you guys. Like, if you love somebody on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and you buy their book, I'm here for you guys. So I I love it. It's really exciting to me. Me too. And I think that it kind of extends the legacy of food television that we've been seeing for a long time. But it puts a lot more... Most of the time, I'd say it puts a lot more responsibility and creative vision on the protagonist or on the host themselves because they're not working within the confines of network TV or having like producers like they have their own vision. And often they're doing a lot of that work themselves, maybe at least until they get to a certain point. So I really respect creators that are doing that because there's so much more work that goes into it than you can experience, especially in like such a short format. So I think it'll be really cool to get to dig into that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to you. And you know what? Thanks for sharing the three things. You too. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.